0: What a great day to be in the house of the Lord. <clears throat> it is, it's an extraordinary time here at First Baptist Church, for sure. As you may or may not know, we've moved the date to up for our first service again. It's on the 17th now of September. There'll only be one service that day, no Sunday school. We'll start that service at 10 a.m. Um, also, there's one more Sunday then in the, sanct- in the gym um, also today, there's no youth tonight, so as soon as this service is over, we're going to pack everything up and get it ready for Learn and Grow tomorrow. Uh, I've asked the youth and uh, some of the uh, college age that usually do that on Sunday night to kind of help out. You ought to watch them do it. They're experts at it by now. Been doing it for a while. Also, the ladies want me to announce that Ladies Night Out is coming up on in October. I think it's the second week of October, something like that. Um, you'll get more information about that, but, uh, they're going to be selling tickets because they eat and they got a really neat thing planned. Instead of having a speaker, they're going to have a, like a panel discussion with several of the church members and it's really going to be neat, really going to be neat. Um, just don't wait to the last minute to buy a ticket cause they need to order food and know how many people are coming. Um, normally our practice is to preach straight through books of the Bible and we're set to begin the book of Hebrews next. We're going to be doing that. Uh, but as we prepare to enter into the you know, the new space in there, we're taking time to remind ourselves of our mission. It's been a good five years or so to, since we've really outlined our mission and vision here at First Baptist Church, who we're going to be. Uh, we are here to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ and growing as disciples of Jesus Christ, and so for the next five or six weeks, before we jump into Hebrews and Uh, Go verse by verse through that. We're going to look at how we do that, how we make disciples of Christ, how we grow as disciples of Christ. And last week we looked at 1 Timothy 4 uh, verses 6 through 10. And we saw Paul call Timothy to train himself for godliness. That was his command. Stay away from the silly myths, train yourself for godliness. And we saw how we as believers do the same. We can't grow in Christ by just trying really, really hard to act right. We can't grow in Christ by just chasing after every new fad or looking for the long-lost secret that's been hidden from the church for all these years that somebody just came out with. There is no long-lost secret to the Christian life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient. We know that we're saved by grace through faith. We know that the gospel alone makes us right with God, righteous before God. There's nothing that we can add to it because our sin in Christ is death and resurrection have been forgiven forever and ever and ever. But to grow in uh, Christ, to grow as a disciple of Christ, walking in holiness before the Lord, we must train ourselves day in, day out, moment by moment, inch by inch, train ourselves. By sowing to the Spirit, by keeping in step with the Spirit, training ourselves in the things God uses to grow us. And we spent all last Sunday talking about that. The Word of God, prayer, fellowship, service, all of the spiritual disciplines, which is what we're going to be talking about for the next five or six weeks under worship, connect, and serve. But last week, we also saw that our training, our obedience, our striving is not where our hope is found. In 1 Timothy 4.10, we saw Paul said strive for godliness, but he said because our hope is set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. So before we spend several Sundays showing what the Bible says about making disciples, about growing as a disciple in Christ, training ourselves, worship, connect, serve, all of those things, I wanted to take this Sunday just to focus our minds on that hope That Paul talked about there. We strive because our hope is set upon God. I want to take a a, a Sunday and and set our minds on things eternal. What Paul says in Colossians 3, he says, if you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above. We know that this Christian life is not easy. We know we live in a fallen world filled with suffering and disappointment and pain and sin and all of those things. We know that growing as a disciple is toil and striving. Paul used those exact two words in 1 Timothy 4.10 last week. But if we keep our eyes on that perfect hope, the glory of our salvation, what Christ has done for us and what is to come, the fulfillment of that thing, we we can finish the race that Christ has set before us. Because we know how this race ends. We can endure all the things, all the bad news you see, all the stuff that floats around this this world and all the news cycle and all the bad things and all the suffering that we experience in our own life. We can endure all of that because we know what's waiting for us at the finish line. So today I want to look at the finish line. I want to look at John's description of our eternal state as he describes the new creation in Revelation 21 and 22. Okay, does that sound good? Okay, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Revelation 21, verse 1. says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, the tabernacle of God is with man. If you were to continue reading in chapter 21, he describes the new city, its materials, its size, its shape, all of those things. And then in 22, uh, chapter 22, verses 1 through 5 is the final description of that city. He says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, we're still talking about the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Your translation may say serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we do love you, and we thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would just, um, that you would come and your spirit would just prepare our hearts for what you would have to say. God, I pray that you would change us, that you would show us uh, the hope that we have because we know that we are in Christ Jesus and born again. God, I pray that you would keep our eyes folks, f- focused on things above when it gets hard to train, when it gets hard to walk through suffering in this life. God, that you would keep us focused on who you are, what you have done uh, and what you will do. Lord, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of my earliest memories as a child is, it has to do with death. Um, I remember being at a funeral of someone, my my family knew, I, I don't know who it was. I must have been three or four years old, just really early, and the whole memory is kind of vague and foggy, you know, like those real early memories of your life. But at some point, I, I realized at this funeral that Everybody's going to die, which means someday I'm going to die. And boy, I remember just crying and crying, just being inconsolable for a long time. And to be honest, even, even after I was saved as an adult, um, I didn't really understand the Bible's teaching about eternity, you know? So passing out of this life, dying, passing from this life, just really didn't seem that appealing to me. You know, I didn't want to be some fat diapered angel plucking a harp in the clouds somewhere. I don't want to be a ghost floating around in the ether or the cosmos or something like that. And I still don't. But that's not what the Bible teaches about eternity. When we leave this life, our spirit goes to be with the Lord for sure. We go to heaven. That's what we talk about all the time. But even that isn't our eternal state. When the Lord returns, all things will be made new, a new heaven, a new earth. We will have perfected bodies, and we will dwell in the new creation, in the Lord's presence forever, in perfect peace and in rest. It will be real life, and it will be forever. That's our eternal hope, and we have it fulfilled totally, perfectly in Jesus Christ. Chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation shows us this eternal state. At the end of chapter 20 in Revelation, the creation comes to an end. The great white throne judgment, the death in and, death and Hades thrown into the lake of fire. Then in chapter 21, 22, we're shown the new creation, what will be. And John describes what he sees in this vision as a city, the new Jerusalem. And it's there that God's covenant promise will be perfectly fulfilled. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. We're going to talk more about the new heaven and the new earth in just a minute. But in this new creation, he sees this city, this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and he describes it as a bride adorned for her husband. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And rather than us go into a bunch of speculation about what this new city is and all of this thing, the text interprets this vision for us. In verse 3, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Here, the promise of all of Scripture is perfectly and completely fulfilled. This is the storyline of the whole Bible, the point to which all of history has been moving toward. The reason for it all In Genesis 1 and 2, God created mankind to have perfect communion and fellowship with him in the garden, the perfect creation. The first husband and wife were to represent God as his image bearers. They were to have dominion over the creation and be in perfect, loving fellowship with their God as they filled the earth with his image. But sin entered. And you know the story. Adam and Eve were separated from God, cast out of the garden. But that's not the end of the story. God promises a seed would come and crush the head of the serpent. What has been corrupted in the fall will be made right. God will bring redemption so that he can dwell with his people again. Though he is holy and they are not holy, he will redeem them so that he will dwell with them again. Later, God chooses a man, Abraham, and makes a covenant with him and his offspring. He will be Abraham's God and Abraham's offspring will be his people. Then the promise is related again to Moses. I will be your God. You will be my people. And in the wilderness, God provided a way that he could, in a limited sense, dwell among his people in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And all through Israel's history, the prophets remind the people of the promise again and again and again. It's found in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, in Zechariah. In fact, in Ezekiel 37, it says... um, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant. He's talking about the new covenant here. I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The promise. And then God fulfills the promise. God, the eternal son, took upon himself a human nature. In John chapter 1, it says, The Word became flesh and tabernacle, dwelled among us. And Jesus fulfilled the covenant law of God, lived the perfect sinless life that we could not live, gave His sinless life as a sacrifice on the cross. The Father poured out all of His wrath on His own Son, who stood in the sinner's place. And by grace, through faith in Jesus Sinners are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Our sin has been paid for at the cross. His righteousness, Jesus' righteousness is credited to our account. In him we are redeemed. We are purchased, we are adopted, and there is coming a day when this promise will be consummated and fulfilled perfectly, not just in our hearts, not just in our lives, not just in our standing before God, but in all of creation. The whole story of the Bible has been pointing to this moment. God's tabernacle, his dwelling is with mankind. If you were to read the rest of uh, chapter 21 in Revelation, you get this detailed description of the new Jerusalem. It's materials, it's wall, it's size, it's shape. And because we are so unfamiliar with our Old Testament, we often read this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like it's some kind of spaceship or something, you know, instead of what God intends us to see. For example, if you looked at verse 16 through 18 in Revelation 21, it says the city lies, he's describing the city, the city lies four square, it's length the same as it's width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. I, I, I'm, not real, I'm not a big fan of the translations that change the stadia to miles, like it's 1,500 miles or something. The point is that all of the measurements of the city are multiples of 12, it's perfect. It's length, it's width, it's height are all equal. It's a box. It's a cube. It's length, it's width, and it's height are all equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city, look at it, was pure gold, like clear glass. So the city, the New Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God among men, is made all of gold, and it's a cube. Length, width, height, all equal. Okay, I mean, it sounds kind of like a spaceship, doesn't it? It's pretty weird for a dwelling place of God. Not if you've been studying with with us on Wednesday night through Exodus. Where else do you see a box, a cube, all sides equal, made completely out of gold? The Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And later also in the temple. Look how God describes the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. He says the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. If you know your Old Testament, a golden cube, although it sounds weird, makes perfect sense. What John sees here is the whole city. The whole creation is now the holy of holies where God's presence dwells. And his people are in the holy of holies with him. No longer is there any outer court or inner court or veil separating his people from his presence. All creation now is the holy of holies. If you were to look in chapter 21 verses 13 and 14, Revelation 21, 13, 14, John sees three gates on each side of the city. Each gate has a name of the, one of the tribes of Israel on it. Why? Because in the wilderness, the 12 tribes were commanded to camp around the four sides of the tabernacle as they journeyed. Three tribes on each side, three gates on each side of the city. It's in Numbers 2. What John is seeing here is a fulfillment of God's purpose to dwell with his people. That's why the explanation for this new city is, behold, the thrones, a voice from the throne said, now the presence of God is with man. God's purpose to dwell with his people. That's the whole point. It's all been leading up to this. God with us forever and ever and ever. No more separation. No more exile. No more veils. No more sacrifices. No more sin. His presence is with us. And we're shown that the curse of sin will be removed forever. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In the new heavens, the new earth, all that is fallen and under the curse of sin, all that's wrong with this world, will be done away with fully and permanently. In 22, verse 3, it says, There will no longer be anything accursed. All of the effects of the fall will be gone forever. When sin entered the creation, death and suffering entered with it. Grief and sorrow were the result. Think of all the things in your life that have caused you grief, caused you sorrow, caused you pain, crying. All of that will be gone. What's wrong with this world will be made right. And and not only suffering and trial and sin will end, It will all be healed and mended as God himself wipes away every tear. There will be no more death. We will live in a new creation, the presence of God forever and ever, in perfect peace, without sin, without the effects of sin, without the war against sin, and without the looming reality of death and dying. It will be real life. And it will never end because death is no more. Now, I can tell when I say forever that we say forever or eternal a lot in church. So that doesn't really strike a chord anymore with folks. We don't have a concept of forever. For us, you know, 70, 80 years, that's a long time. But think about being there, the new heavens, the new earth, for a billion years. I know that don't strike a chord either, does it? It's hard to wrap our mind around a billion years. The word billion gets thrown around a lot today. We don't realize just how big a number that is. Some of you have heard this before, but I don't really care. I'm going to say it anyway. A billion seconds ago, if you counted back, this second right here, back a billion seconds, the year would be 1990. If you're less than 32 years old in here today, you have not been alive for a billion seconds yet. If you live 90 years, you will have lived 2.8 billion seconds. That's it. A billion minutes ago, if you count backward from this minute backward, a billion minutes, the year was 121 A.D. No human being in the history of the world has ever lived a billion minutes—not even Methuselah. If you lived to be a thousand years old, your whole life wouldn't even come close to a billion minutes. A billion hours is one hundred and fourteen, one hundred and fifty-five years. One hundred fourteen. A billion hours is one hundred and fourteen thousand, one hundred and fifty-five years. 114,000 years, that's a billion hours. I can make a darn good case that the whole creation ain't been here that long. So you won't live a billion minutes. I can make a good case and I believe with all my heart that this whole creation hadn't been here a billion hours yet. And when you think about it like this, you realize how short this life really is. It's a vapor and then it's gone. But after we've been there in that new city, the perfect presence of God, resting in his peace for a billion minutes and a billion hours and then a billion years and then another billion years and then another billion years and then another. another, After all of that, you'll still have forever to go. And what will it be like in this new city? I'm glad you asked. Flip over to 22 verse 1. This is the end. Actually, all of 21 and the first five verses of 22 are the description of this new city, new heavens, new earth. And here we see that creation itself will be restored forever. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Notice God, the Father, and the Lamb are sitting on the throne through the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, it says in the first part of verse 3. This language comes straight out of Genesis 1 and 2. Instead of the river flowing out of Eden, as it did in Genesis, it will flow out of the throne of God and the Lamb. Zechariah and Ezekiel prophesy about a river flowing out of the end time temple in Jerusalem. Here it is flowing out of the new Jerusalem from God himself, the water of life pouring out from God, living water, life giving water from the very throne of God and the lamb giving life to the new creation and in the center of the city, the tree of life. Man was exiled from paradise, from the garden, and forbidden to eat from the tree in Genesis 3. Now God's story of redemption comes full circle. The people of God are given freely to eat from the tree of life because sin has been dealt with. Sin is no more. Death is no more. His people are holy, not just in position before God, which we are in Christ, but in practice, in our life, in our walk, in everything. We are holy as God is holy. This is the restoration of what was lost in Genesis. The whole creation will be restored to what God intended in the Garden of Eden. And it won't just be for a single family or a single nation. The leaves of the tree will be healing for all the nations. God has redeemed from, for himself a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And all of those born again in Jesus Christ will be restored in the new creation. Just as it was intended to be in the beginning. We're shown that the end, the final eternal state of his people will be just like the beginning before sin entered into the creation. The new Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle of God is the restored Eden and now covers the entire creation. Just as Adam and Eve were the first husband and wife, the new Eden has a bride adorned for her husband. God has restored what sin corrupted God has redeemed what was separated. He's brought his people back into perfect fellowship in his presence forever. And finally, in the last few verses of this, it says, God, his servants are going to delight in his presence forever. The second part of verse three says, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will serve him or worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. In the tabernacle, a veil separated the mercy seat from God's throne from the people. No one was allowed to enter God's presence except the high priest one time a year. As we've gone through Exodus on Wednesday nights, we've gone through a lot of chapters, and it was kind of—I don't know—we a lot of people don't didn't realize that God put all of this, uh, all of these instructions about the tabernacle and how to build it and all the furniture in the tabernacle and all those kind of things. But almost there was only a small section of Israel who ever actually saw inside the tabernacle. Nobody ever went in ever except the Levites to serve. And the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. That was it. Nobody else in Israel ever saw inside the tabernacle. And the high priest could only go in with the blood of sacrifice. But here all God's people are with him. Before the throne. In the city. In the Holy of Holies. Jesus, the true high priest, entered into the heavenly throne room of God, the real holy of holies, bringing the blood of his sacrifice. And on that day, when he makes all things new, that very throne room, that very city, the the real holy of holies, will come down out of heaven, and his people will dwell there with him forever. Without a veil, without any other separation, for there will be no more sin, and we will be holy as he's holy. It says his servants will serve him or worship him. It could be translated either way. I think both ideas are in view here. Life will consist of serving God in the new creation, just as Adam and Eve were called to serve God by working and keeping the garden. Because the eternal state is compared to the Garden of Eden here, I think that there will be work. There will be vocation. It will be real life. Real life. Not spirits floating around in the clouds somewhere. Not, not angels plucking harps. It will be Life. In a real creation, you will have real bodies. The things that you know here, you'll know there. The people you know here, you know there. You will be who you are forever. How do I know that? Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he transfigured before the disciples, it says Moses and Elijah stood next to him and talked to each other. They'd been dead 800 years, but they were still Moses and still Elijah. They were who they were. It will be real life, a real creation, real bodies. We will be who we are forever. It'll be just like life here, but without sin, without suffering, without death. And God's very presence will dwell with us. He will be our God and we will be his people in his presence forever. In the garden, Adam and Eve experienced intimate fellowship with God, unhindered by anything. They were his perfect image bearers. God is said to walk in the garden in the cool of the day in Genesis 3. And we're told that this intimate fellowship will be ours as well with the very presence of God. It says we will see his face. In Exodus 33, 20, Moses was told, you can't see my face because no one can see my face and live. But we will forever be with him in perfect fellowship, in his very presence, forever. In the new creation, nothing will hinder us from his presence. We will be holy as he is holy. We're holy in position now because Christ has made us holy. We'll be holy in practice, in our life, in all that we are. That's what it means when he says, they will have my name on their foreheads. It's a reference to the high priest who wore a fixture on his head that said, holy to the Lord. And we will forever live in God's light. What does it mean? What does it mean that there's no longer any night and and the Lord is our light? It's a fulfillment of yet another prophecy in the prophets, Isaiah 60, 19 and 20. He said, on that day, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor the brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. And this is what he means, how he interprets it. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. Look at it. And your days of mourning shall be ended. What a glorious hope that we have. When I say hope, you know I'm not saying, well, dang, I I hope it happens. What I mean is expectation. The Bible talks about hope. It means we're putting our expectations in the promise. What a glorious hope we have. What a day that will be. That's what creation eagerly waits for, groans for, it says in Romans. That's what our souls pant for, long for. But is that your hope? Are you finding your hope in what Jesus has done and what He has promised and who we are in Him and who we will be forever? Or are you finding your hope in something of this world? Is your hope in your spouse making you happy? Is your hope in your business making you prosper? Is your hope in your success, your ministry? Is your hope in... The praise of men or the comforts of this world or any, anything else. Is that where you put your hope? Is that what you have to have in order to be happy and filled with joy? The things of this world, even good things. This world's passing away. It's filled with disappointment and sin and suffering. Even when outside suffering wanes and we're relatively comfortable in this life, you're still constantly battling with your sin and the flesh. This world is not our home. It's passing away. This world has nothing that will be eternal other than those things that are of God. Our hope is not in the things of this world. Our hope is in, as Paul said last week in First Timothy The God who is the Savior. Our hope is in the fulfillment of his covenant promise in Jesus Christ in creation. Our hope is in Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And nothing can take that hope away. If our hope is in him looking forward to the things of eternity, knowing that this life is just a vapor in the reality of eternity, We can endure suffering. We can train for godliness. If I stretched a rope across the side of this this gym, and this rope, it represented all of eternity. Your life wouldn't even be a microscopic blip in that rope. This world's passing away and we put all of our hope, all of our dreams, all of our expectations, all of our energy in this little measly 80 or 90 years that we live. When we have all eternity to gain, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the God who saves What that means for us, and the reason why I bring this to you today, before we start talking about worship, connect, serve, training for God, and growing as a disciple in Christ, is because I want you to see, if we keep our eyes fixed upon the things above, Colossians 3, if you've been raised with Christ, set your eyes on things above. If we keep our eyes fixed on our hope in Jesus, we can keep on sowing to the spirit. We can keep on walking in the spirit. We can keep on training in godliness. We can keep on investing ourselves in the disciplines that God uses to grow us, the word of God, prayers, fellowship of saints, all of those things. We can strive and toil as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 10, strain and toil Because our hope is in the God who saves. In Galatians, Paul said it this way. We know that in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. You remember when he said that? Galatians chapter 5. Sow to the spirit. We don't sow to the flesh. We reap what we sow. So we know that we will reap. We keep our eyes on eternity. Knowing that there's coming a day. When we will reap. There's coming a day when all will be made new. And what a glorious day that will be. And it will be forever. You will be you. And you will live forever. The only question is location, location, location. The only question is will you be there? Who can enter into this eternal joy? Who can enter into this eternal life? Into this this remade garden creation? This new heavens? This new earth? Who can possibly enter that? Is it the person who is training for godliness really, really well? Nope. Better not put your hope there. Is it the person who's striving with all they are just to love as best they can? Nope. You better not put your hope there either. Is it the person who is, whoever that person may be, on the whole earth, the most obedient, the most holy living person that ever lived? Nope. You better not put your hope there either. Who is it that can enter into this garden that has been closed off to sinners? We're told in Revelation twenty one twenty seven, Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's who will enter. And before you read that and say, Well, it says that if I don't do anything detestable or false, I'm good. Is that you? Yeah, I didn't think so. It's no one. We must have our name written in the Lamb's book of life. And the only way that happens is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Being supernaturally born again, adopted into the family of God, redeemed by His blood and His life, imbued with His righteousness. And your name is inscribed in the book of life. Because it is the Lamb's book. God's command for you today is simply the very first words that Jesus spoke in the gospel of Mark, the very first thing Jesus said, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. That is what it means to be have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. And believer, listen, you may be struggling. In fact, you are. If you are a believer, I know that you're struggling. We all are struggling. You may be hurting. You may be suffering. You may be striving and failing. You may, you may be tired and exhausted. Keep your eyes set on things above. This life is a vapor. It's a blip and it's gone. This is not who we will be forever. This is not who, what you will endure forever. There's coming a day when a law be made right. There's coming a day when we will see our God, where we will be in, our pres- in the presence of our God, when we will dwell with him in the very holy of holies before his presence for all eternity. Keep your eyes on things above and you can, so to the Spirit, you can endure suffering. You can walk as a disciple of Jesus Christ enduring all of the things of this world because this world's not our home. Jesus Christ is enough. And he has gone to prepare a place for us. Trust in him today. Give him your heart and life. Make sure that your name is written in that book. When you get there, it'll be too late. You must trust in him today. Let's pray. Father, we do love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for our eternal hope. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus and in nothing else. We thank you for showing us what it will be the end of this race that we're running. For we know that we're not running in our own power anyway. God, we pray that you would prepare our hearts, that you would focus our eyes upon things eternal as we live for you, as we follow you, as we discipline ourselves for godliness, as we sow to the Spirit, as we keep in step with the Spirit, as, as we follow you in this life. God, we pray that you would keep our eyes upon you, who you are, what you have done, and what you've promised God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, God, they may have repeated a prayer, they may have been trying to live right and do better, and none of that puts our name in the Lamb's book of life. We must trust in you. So God, I pray that you would show them the cross, that you would show them your grace and mercy, show them the sacrifice that you gave for sin, the only way that any sinner can be right with God. And God, I pray that you would have them call out upon you, that you would give them strength to call out upon you trusting in you. Give their heart and life to you. Trusting that Jesus died for my sin, and I know that my sin is atoned in him. Trusting that Jesus rose from the grave to give me life. Father, that is your command. Repent and believe the gospel. God, I pray that you would save souls in here today and help us to walk after you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As always, I'm going to stand right down here. If you want to come, I'd love to pray with you. Give your heart and life to Christ today, and let's continue to walk. Will you stand with me?